The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. Hi there, this is Cheryl Hannah Nicholson, and I'm with the Monstrous Regiment. Today, it is my privilege to have with me here Joseph Foreman. Now, Joseph is an interesting person that I've uh, been privileged to have some conversations with, and I've been watching what he's been doing over the past few years, and some of the stuff that he's been saying is stuff that has had a, a direct personal impact on me. And so... Uh, and how I first learned about him was through uh, Bojidar Marinov. Now, Bojidar has had a huge um, impact on my thinking. He's really done a lot to help expose some of the presuppositions that I was bringing to Scripture in ways in which I was not viewing some of the things I was reading correctly. And uh, whenever I see somebody who has a huge influence on me, one of the questions I always have is, who influenced him? And a name that kept coming up, that Bo was referring to was Joseph Foreman. So when Joseph showed up on Facebook, probably about a year or so ago, and started posting, I kind of sat up and took notice and and uh, started reading what he had to say with great interest, just first of all, because of the relationship with Bojadar, but then for the sake of the things that he was actually saying himself. And no word of a lie. It's been life-changing not only for me, but it's also been impacting some of the members of my family. So, Joseph, I'd like to uh, have you tell us a little bit about your church background and then some of the work that you did with Operation Rescue. I uh, thank you very much. Let's uh, let's 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 pray. Okay. Father, in the hour that we have together, that you would rule and overrule the things that are said, touch people's heart with what you want them to hear and, and grant them grace to overlook the errors that I make or to correct me in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. The, um, I am, you cut me up. I bleed Presbyterian blue. Um, as far back as we have any people, any record of, of Foreman's Lapsley's Ogden's, uh, what have you in, in my ancestry uh, is as soon as they, they got off the boat, they were the pastors, the elders, the lawyers, the judges, the um, people like that in society. And they're all, I believe they're all, they're all Presbyterian, not a, not a Baptist rat in the pack. Um, <laughs> and um, so uh, that's, that's just what I've always been when I was, when I was uh, young. One of the first things I did intellectually when I was about 12 or 13 is I realized the church I was growing up in, which was uh, in the middle of Montreat, was the Montreat Presbyterian Church. And that's a conference ground for the Southern Presbyterian Church. Um, I came to the realization that, that I was probably the only one who was self-consciously reformed. And so I figured out what my friends needed was, was a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith in a, you know, in, in a modern tongue. And so I started translating it. My dad is a um, 
brilliant with words. And when I proudly showed him my rendering of the first chapter, he took out his red pen and just inked it to death. And when he handed it back to me, he says, I don't know if you can read that uh, because I found what you were saying fairly incomprehensible. He said, you've got to realize this. If you have things that you want the world to know that are in your head, you must learn how to speak in a way the world can understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I said, thank you. And it was a, to me, it was a, honestly, it was a tremendous honor because he thought it was worth redlining. You know, I thought he was just going to hand it back and say, well, that's real good. Keep working on this, which is what I would say, because you're not allowed to correct anybody today. But he, I just took it a huge honor. Well, anyway, that just gave you some of them. I have been Presbyterian all my life. Um, Yet there's been something that's bothered me about it, and that is I could not find Presbyterian structure in the Bible. I just couldn't find it. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't find it in the New Testament. I could find verses where you could say, yeah, this is okay, it's biblical in a broad sense. In other words, it, it's not like it's, it's, it's blasphemous. But it, it bothered me, and I just figured, well, God wants us to govern ourselves, and this is a really good way to do it because we have checks and balances. Um, and, and that's just kind of where I was coming from. Now, uh, I, when I met my wife is the first time I heard about Westminster Theological Seminary. I had never, I did not know such a place existed. I thought I was the last reformed person in the world. And I went off to college and I figured I had to get the best education I could because I was going to have to revive the Reformation. Uh, it wasn't quite that grandiose, but, but more or less, that's kind of the way I thought about it. Mm -hmm. And on one of my first or second dates with her, I asked her what her dad did. She said, well, he's, he's the, the president of a seminary. Which one? Westminster. Mm, that's interesting. So the second date, I said, well, wait a second. What did your dad do? Because back then I forgot stuff like that, too. Besides, I was way too obsessed with her. And she said, uh, he's the president of Westminster. Well, Westminster, is it like Presbyterian or something? Now, from her perspective, growing up in Westminster Seminary, being her entire environment, it was like, are there Christians who aren't from Westminster? That's, that's kind of her, her prejudice. My prejudice is, um, are there any Reformed people left? And so in this conversation, I, I gathered that her dad was the president of, of a very conservative Reformed seminary. And uh, that's, that's how I found out about the larger world, uh, Reformed world out there. And from... From there, I went to Gordon-Conwell, and, and uh, then, then I did my three years at Westminster. Um, and went on, uh, after I got out of there, I started a janitorial service because I had done about all the bookish stuff I could do. The theory, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant. I was a presuppositional thinker because my father is a prisoner in uh, uh, communist China learned presuppositional apologetics, not by any name or title, but he, he was housed with a, a, a one of the Red Guards whose job it was to convince him of the wisdom of Mao and of communism and all that sort of thing. And in the course of it, he, he led the man to Christ just through their apologetical arguing. The guy gets executed, and so, so now they put two guards in there with him to be sure that the guards don't get swept away. <clears throat> um, and so coming back, he was the guy we would spend every dinner time arguing about something. And, and he's the one who taught me how to argue by, by, by not theoretically, but by concretely framing the case, which is presuppositional argument. 
And my experience in Montreat was that other people could give 10 reasons for, the, for believing the resurrection really happened. And people would go, oh, my God, Jesus must be God. And uh, I would give 30 reasons for why the resurrection happened. And people would say, huh, well, it's an open universe. I might, I might come back from the dead. Who knows what that proves? So it, it's like, to, to, to me, nothing meant anything unless you deal with the person's presuppositions first. Uh, that's just how I was. And, and um, so when I started reading Van Til, it was sort of like, oh, this is, yeah, get on with it. Okay, I've been there, done that. And uh, that being said, I, I don't lightly at all. I'm just saying from, from, from where I was coming from, he was just giving me more information about what else could you do. Mm-hmm. And then finally, one of the most important issues was something that my father-in-law taught me. Not that he was teaching me. We were just discussing something. And he says, you know, a lot of people don't really receive this. I think he said it this way because he didn't know where I was philosophically. Um, <clears throat> he says, a lot of people really don't, don't think this way. He says, but the more I'm thinking about it, the more I've just come to the conclusion that, that if you want to know what philosophy is, study Christian theology. Because really all secular philosophy is as a discipline is pagan theology. And, and that, um, all of you listening know that that's, if Van Til didn't say it, he certainly thought it. Um, but by the time that he said that, it just crystallized a lot of my thinking that he's right. And that's when I started realizing that, that things like the, uh, the Apostles' Creed and so forth, if you just stick, if you memorize that, make that a part of your warp and woof, almost every errant philosophical idea that comes along will be addressed by the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, and, and those are things, as you teach your children, are things that get down into their hardwiring. And then later on, make them more um, heresy resistance. Okay, so after all this theoretical stuff, I was just curious, in the real world, do reform principles apply? And so I started a janitorial service to see if, if all this theory stuff actually worked for real people cleaning real toilets. And, and in that, I came to the conclusion it did because I would work with the people who were working with me, and I would say, now you're a Christian. Um, do you realize that right now your calling in life is to establish the kingdom of God in the bottom of that toilet bowl? That if you see it as something that, that, that's beneath you or beneath God, then you don't understand the first thing about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know you think you're a holy Christian and all that, but I'm going to know by looking in these toilet bowls and looking on the desks and looking at the trash cans, everybody's going to know the Jesus you worship. And they're going to know the relationship of Jesus Christ to the things of this world. Mm-hmm. You either somebody believes that this world is Christ and you're a steward in them. And right now in terms of this job, that's the toilet bowl, that's a cigarette ashtray, that's the trash can, that's the floor, that's the front glass. And, and I, I just went and took all of the Westminster theory and turned it into the theology of, of being a uh, janitor. Um, and, and that was really exciting. It was out of that that, that my wife... Uh, completely distracted me. I mean, I was on my way. We had one of the best companies and franchises in the whole, it, it, it was a franchise business, uh, environment control. And she gets me picketing these hospitals. Well, we were all picketing as a family. And I was starting to meet these people who were doing sit-ins at abortion clinics. Um, and, and then one rainy Sunday afternoon, we were going out, my eight-year-old daughter, Laurel, who's now 
40. Isn't that scary? <laughs> She's not that much younger than you, Cheryl. Um, <laughs> and she said, um, she said I, I, I just don't want to go this afternoon. It was Sunday afternoon. And I said, well, come on, Laurel. I mean, it's, it's, it's raining. That's, that's when we really show our commitment. And she said, Dad, if you really believe the babies are being killed, why are you just carrying these stupid signs? And it's like at that point, I became a rescuer. The word hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. But it was like, man, you're absolutely right. Well, we ran child killing out of, the, out of two hospitals in Norristown um, and then got involved with basically the Catholics doing the sit-ins, trying to figure out something to call them. And they are the ones who came up with the word with rescue. And as soon as we got the right word, it's like all of a sudden it opened up Jesus Christ. I mean, theologically, Jesus Christ is the Savior, the rescuer, the one who is to come in the world to save us. And, and, and once you grasp that, that, that the cross is how he saved us, that's where my first book came from, um, Shattering the Darkness, the crisis of the cross in the church today. Because mm-hmm. I realized the problem was not Christians like, well, I'm not sure about civil disobedience, or I'm not sure about um, whether or not this is the best, most effective way. To Christians, what they're not sure about is whether or not taking up the cross of Jesus Christ is worth it. And that was what I would come back on people. Fine, do something other than pro-life. Show me how you're dying for Christ. Witness is the most important. Tell me the people you've led to Christ. Oh, you haven't. Well, I guess witness isn't the most important to you. What is the most important to you? Tell me. In fact, don't tell me. that That's not relevant. Tell God. Tell yourself. Don't hide from it. Where are you the grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying? Or are you just somebody out there on the sidewalk abiding alone? And uh, those, that, was the, uh, that was the burden of my first book. Um, and then all of that ceased and died away. And I became a, um, I became, well, first I taught in a college. And I got, then I got involved in soccer and became a referee, a player, a referee. Um, and then finally, uh, I left all that to start a business with my wife, running a coffee shop and uh, catering. And she is a brilliant chef, just a brilliant chef. Um, and I'm not saying that because I'm her husband. I'm just saying that because I don't care what your recipe is. She will make it better. Well, I've uh, seen some of the food that you've been eating on some of your videos, and it's just... Well, that's just my... <laughs> <laughs> um, so. All that said is that's that's how in about two what is it two almost three years ago um, about five years ago I started saying okay I want to write again I'm probably going to be useless in about ten years how do I want to spend the last ten years Maybe what I'm do- doing now is squeezing this in and then I'm going to uh, be uh, putting on several about seven eight banquets over the weekend starting at about two hours mm-hmm. um, is 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 this so I then started trying to go online couldn't do it and my uh, my associate who works for me and was building up, he was a brilliant guy with building up the company said, well, just go on Facebook. I said, I can't make Facebook work. I've tried. So he signed up on Facebook. That's the reason my icon is my father. Uh, he looks like Gandalf and uh, <laughs> people say, why don't you change him? Well, Cause he's my father. That's why. And it's an awesome picture. I mean, he's an awesome guy. And so, uh, that got me on, and about a year later, he had a heroin overdose. We didn't even know that he had been a heroin addict because when he came to work for us, his whole life cleaned up. He was leading people to Christ. He brought his family back together. Everything changed, and then he started 
at heart, he's a player. I mean, I could see that. That's one of the things that made him such an engaging person. And I didn't realize that he was that close to the edge. And he experimented with some heroin, turned out to be gray death, and he died. And so I get this phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, hey, are we still going to be doing uh, some event that was coming up in two days? Because Glenn just died. Well, what did he, I mean, is this a hoax? What did he die of? Heroin overdose. <clears throat> well, these are just the people I minister to. One of the reasons I have a coffee shop is so that that grunge element of the world that views coffee shops as sort of their holy of holies. <clears throat> it's funny, they'll steal from any, everybody, but they don't steal from us. We're a coffee shop. Um, we'll, we'll come in and I can build relationships with them. And, and so that is um, uh, not that I'm any good at that, but, but talking to uh, the, really the people who used to be the abortion clinic defenders when we were doing uh, rescuing, uh, Operation Rescue, I've always had a tremendous burden from for them, and their children are the ones coming into the clinics, excuse wow. me, into the coffee shop. And they would be the first down there at the clinic to try and keep it open. Um, so anyway, that kind of brings me up to, I, I got online, discovered Bojdar, discovered people like you, uh, discovered a whole world out there I never knew existed, and started writing again. And yeah. So that kind of brings us to uh, one of the reasons I asked you on here. Um, a while ago, Bojadar wrote uh, some articles on the ghettoization of the church and uh, the role of elders in maybe inhibiting the building of the kingdom or the maturation of, of uh, Christians in the pews. And um, he issued uh, a challenge to you. So could you pick up from there and tell us what the challenge was and how you met that challenge. Yes, but first we have to have a brief commercial. I'm drinking coffee from Moments Coffee Shop. And the coffee I'm drinking is Telos Coffee, which is Christian Reconstruction Coffee. And given the, the brilliant mind that I got, I cannot remember the name of the young couple that makes it, but they're just starting to roast. And it's called Telos Coffee. And you, if you just go online and Google Telos, so they'll pop up and you'll know who it is that I'm forgetting. Um, but but they're a precious couple, and, and uh, we're going to be, be uh, making their coffee in our coffee shop. Okay. Cool. Now, I realize it's Christian education, but there you have it. Um, we came, they came down to visit. We had a sumptuous feast that cooked for them and uh, sent them on their way rejoicing. And I kept a few bags of coffee, though. Now, <laughs> so we've done all that. Uh, what was your question again? The oh, challenge? what was the question? Bojar asked. I was kind of challenging him on this because the first question I had reading it is, okay, Bojar, so you're a Baptist, big deal. Forget all you Baptists, okay? You know, be gone, long one. Um, and, uh, and, and Bojar says, no, no, it's not Baptist. They, they make the exact same error as the Presbyterians. They just do it with, the ch with a different church government. Oh, so you're not congregational. No, well, maybe this is, uh, who are those people? Quaker. You know, Quakers in the meeting have no... And no, no, it's, it's, it's not any of those things. So this got me interesting. So I said, well, how does discipline in the church take place if the elders don't do it? And at that point, well, there were two questions I was asking him. All you guys are so negative. One of the things I do not like about Christian Reconstruction and theonomy and all of that, and, and, and it's always putting me off from the very beginning, is you all are brilliant at telling everybody how it's wrong. What they're doing this, they're compromising there. The United States government is wrong here. Fine. 
why don't you write a constitution for the way the government ought to be? Oh, well, you know, so far nobody's <laughs> ever done it. Nobody's ever tried it. Hacking something that worked, okay? It works. And that's more than anything that, that, that we reconstructionists can say. We don't have anything that works. We have right. a lot of theory. And, and basically coming out of that kind of a highly negative approach, it was like Bojanar. Okay, great. So you're the smartest guy at putting people down. Can you tell me what, what, what should the church be like? So that was one question. And the other question was, um, who's going to do the disciplining if the elders don't do it? And he says, well, I, t I, I tell you what, it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> he said, he didn't say, I tell you what, he, he said, Joseph, that's your job to explain to people how the church ought to be um, with something that works. You know, in other words, write the book of church order and find for me uh, any verses in the New Testament which gives exclusive power to the elders to exercise discipline, to adjudicate courts. And it's, it's why they call it the session. The session is the court of the church and the elders are the judges of the church. And he said, just, just find a church that, excuse me, find a, a verse that, that says that. Now, I, I want you to notice this challenge because most of the straw men here, and, and the reason nothing has been written to address this is I think everybody starts out with this straw man. And that is they leave the word out exclusive. Right. They, so, so the issue is not can elders discipline people? Of course they can. That, nobody's arguing saying elders can't discipline. But the argument is show me where elders have the office of discipline, the office of judges, the office of judgment that other mere members of the church don't have. And, and that, it took me two years to get it this simple, but the bottom line is the reason elders can discipline you is because they're Christians, not because they're elders. Because when you come to the, really the only disciplined passage in the Bible where, where specifically, well, there's really two of them, maybe three, but there's two of them. Uh, that's, that, that's Matthew 18. How is it done? And, and first of all, Jesus spends maybe three verses, maybe three, maybe two. Mm -hmm. Matthew 18, 15, 17, 18. So maybe four, three. Anyway, the verses are, uh, you got a problem with a brother or sister? Talk to them. That doesn't get resolved. Bring in people to talk with you. That doesn't work. Witnesses, that doesn't work. Take it to the church, not take it to the elders. Now, if you take it to the church, you are taking it to the elders. They're part of the church. And so you say, well, when was this pattern carried out? Well, Peter was having, a, excuse me, Peter and, and, and uh, scratch Peter. Paul was having a problem with people from James uh, upsetting the churches that he was planting because they were coming in and saying that there was another law, another way of salvation, another way of achieving God's blessing. Whatever it was, it's not completely clear exactly what it was, but we know there were issues. And when Peter comes up there and gets swept away with them, uh, and, and, and stops eating with the normal Galatians. And by the way, notice that eating with is more than just, you know, who you happen to go out to lunch with. Eating with was central to the ministry and fellowship of the church. So when you stop eating with, it's like stopping doing communion with. It, 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 it wasn't a small issue. Like, like, do you know or care where I had lunch or who I ate it with? And do you know or care who your husband had lunch with? You know, it, it's like, it's not that. It's, it's, well, you get my point. So at that point, uh, 
they have an issue. And Paul says, that's it. We've got to go down to Jerusalem. His description of the apostles is those reputed to be apostles. He's just dealt with Peter, somebody who literally had the divine appointment of Jesus Christ. We have that recorded. All the apostles had the appointment too. But, but that's, you know, you're the rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. So firm is that an entire group of Christians, the Catholics, it, it built their whole edifice on that, their whole church government on that. And yet, within five minutes, Peter was Satan. He was the stumbling stone who would cause Jesus Christ, God himself, to fall flat on his face. And the stumbling stone, of course, was take the cross out of, out of life and ministry. Um, Later on, Peter is the one who denies Christ with an oath. Uh, was he to be followed then? Should, should all the apostles have been there in the courtyard denying Jesus with an oath? No. Well, he's an apostle. Yeah, you don't obey him at that point. Then he goes to, um, uh, up, up to um, Galatia, and when he, he is to be an apostle obeyed, then he gets swept away with, with the people from James. Now Paul confronts him. You're not an apostle anymore. Paul is very, very clear. Paul himself is not an apostle if he changes his message. An angel from heaven is not an angel to be followed if he changes his message. It's a whole different understanding of leadership and followership. Mm -hmm. When he goes down to Jerusalem, he meets privately with the elders first, the elders and, and the apostles. Step one of Matthew 18. Step, now, step two is they continue to discuss it, but when step three comes, they then go before the entire church, and you'll notice a summary is given by the elders, but not a binding judgment. The binding judgment comes when Paul is asked to testify. So, Paul, tell the church what you've been doing. You know, tell them what you told us. Uh, and when Paul tells the church, everybody with one accord passes judgment on Paul. This is a good thing. Yeah. You're preaching the gospel. You're in. It was, it was anything but a tribunal in which a decision was reached and then proclaimed to the congregation. And if you go back and read it, you'll see there's no tribunal in it. The elders are there. Of course they're there. They're members of the congregation. Where'd you expect them to be? Caesarea? Right. Um, it's, it's, it, and, and what were they doing? They're leading. Of course they were leading. They're the elders. Um, <clears throat> what would you expect them to do? What they weren't doing was issuing binding judgments, which bound the congregation. Right. The whole congregation joins in one accord and the elders are with them. So it, 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 it underlines the fact that why do elders have the power to, to exercise authority? Same reason you do, Cheryl. It's because you're a child of the king. And right. as such, you can shut the gates of hell. And, well, what special thing do elders have? Well, they have a proven track record that's probably better than yours and mine. Okay? But beyond that, it could be Peter himself. It could be James. It could be any of them. And, and they can be wrong. In other words, they're reputed, their reputation. The reputation of the elder is, listen to him. But once you listen to him, it's scripture that's final, not some airy-fairy theory of office and authority. And if Peter himself can blow hot and cold, you listen to him today, you don't listen to him tomorrow, you listen to him, that, you know, if that can happen with him, I'm not Peter. So that, that is, is more or less the structure. Then you go to the specific thing that Jesus said. The specific thing was the Gentiles rule through an authoritarian top-down structure. It's not to be so among you. Well, how do you know he meant authoritarian top-down structure? Because he said the rulers of the Gentiles pick the great ones to rule. Why? Well, you don't want to be ruled by an idiot. Um, 
And then Jesus goes on to say, he rules like the younger brother, not like the older brother who has the legal control of the household when the father dies. He rules like, um, like the least of these, not like the greatest. What, what's the difference between the greatest, the older brother, the master of the house? The, the difference is that Jesus says, I'm among you as a servant. He's characterizing government. And whenever you hear the apostle saying, who is the greatest? Take a look at the context. I think in just about every one of those, Jesus has just told them he's going to die. He's not going to be with him forever. Mm -hmm. And so then they start talking. It's not a bunch of women at a beauty contest. Jesus, could you picture the most beautiful of us? No. He's not saying, could, could you pick the one who has the best whatever? He's not, they're not saying that. Jesus, could you please give your mantle to somebody so we know how to carry along Jesus Christ, Inc., and make your ministry and whatever survive through the earth after you die? That's their, they're looking for the greatest to rule. How do you know that? Because every time Jesus responds, he talks to them about who should be in charge. Okay? The least. The right. first shall be last. He's talking about who's in charge. He's not just talking about, ah, oh, here comes Peter. All right, man, he is great. Peter, you're great. No, he's talking about who's in charge. Uh, hail Peter, the great one. So uh, that, that to me is not just something you can pass over when you talk about authority structure. So the, the one book I'm working on now is just the exegetical study that leads to all that. Just, just verse by verse going through what really is in the first three introductory sections of any Presbyterian book of church order, uh, which, which describes Presbyterian government. And it's basically scripture, verse, scripture verses um, and, and just studying those to see what the scriptures actually say. That's just a technical thing. And that's what I've called, um, that's in, in an attempt to come up with a biblical foundation for a book of order. Like if someone were to say, oh, like I said to Bojadar, okay, great. So tell me how I can start this church, which by the way, a millennial came to me. This is what pivoted my whole focus on this, said, what are you doing? She was my barista and I had been in the coffee shop office all day long typing away madly. She says, what are you typing on? And I was kind of embarrassed, you know, kind of like you get embarrassed when, when you're caught, somebody walks into the bathroom on you or something. It's like, uh-oh, here's somebody who's, who, who's a baby Christian, and she's asking me about something which is so abstract, not even I'm sure what I'm talking about. Yeah. And you should always be ready to give something, you know, this ought to be easily accessible to her. So I just uh, said, well, it's, uh, you know, stumbled my way through. And I said, it's kind of like this. The early church worshipped by everybody getting together at a meal. It was about two or three hour event. And then guess what they did? They did everything that needs to be done. They did their church business. They did their fellowship. They did their worship. They did their preaching and teaching. They did their prophesying. They did their singing. They did their eating and goofing off. Uh, they did their just chasing kids around the sanctuary and playing hide and seek and whatever. Um, they did all the stuff that a church is, is supposed to do. And they did it around a great big meal. Mm -hmm. And I, I was just sort of like trying to say something so I wouldn't sound like, honey, don't, don't you worry your little curls. This is important church business. And I wouldn't expect you to understand, Cheryl. I wouldn't expect you to understand Olivia. And Olivia's response, I mean, I was totally like into myself, just scared to death I was going to say something really opaque to her, you know, stupid. Yeah. And her reaction was she, she kind of crouches down you know, with her hands sort of on her thighs and takes a step forward. And she, she's all poised. Like, I, I was like, what's she going to do? And she said, 
where is this church? I said, well, Olivia, it doesn't exist. What do you mean it doesn't exist? You just described it. That's the church we need to be in. That's the church of Jesus Christ. I've been stuck in all these other churches. When can I, where can I join? I said, well, yeah. Olivia, that was like trying to describe what Jesus and the disciples did. We haven't done it in about 2,000 years. And I'm trying to see what it is they did. Did we make a mistake? She said, hell yes, you made a mistake. This is what the church ought to be like. I mean, she was referring to 2,000 years of church history just in, in one sentence. I'm sitting here researching this. And she just said, yes, it's listless. Millennials don't talk in uh, polite 1950s Christian Southern English. Um, <laughs> they're much more direct than that. And yeah. uh, uh, I have a whole word for their language, but I'm not allowed to use it because it's a bad word. Um, but it really is too vague. Uh, so so she, she said, well, why don't you start the church? I said, well, I, I've got this coffee shop I've got to run. And I've got, she said, anybody can make the damn coffee. You start the church. Well, a customer comes in, so she walks out of my office. And I'm sitting there. And I'm, I mean, seriously, I just sat there staring at the door for 30 minutes. There was silence in heaven for the space of 30 minutes when that seal was broken. Um, <laughs> and my whole direction changed, and I realized I'm sitting here trying to argue people who fundamentally are happy with whatever's going on with church. Yeah. It fundamentally answers their question. It gives them security of something bad, you know. If a sinner comes along, a heretic, a this or that, or that, there's an elder who will take care of it. I'm okay. They don't, the congregation doesn't want change. I'm not going to convince people with these arguments. I'm, it's not just Olivia who won't get it. They won't get it. And if you followed my discussions with various people online, they don't get it. They just don't get it. And well, I began to realize. Can I, can I interject here? I think there's a, a very strong reason why they don't get it. Uh, there's a real strong incentive because those Sunday morning rituals give us a sense of accomplishment that we are in the kingdom and we're doing something for the kingdom. And one of the things that shook me up personally was the fact that um, it kind of leveled the playing field. You know, we can, we can read scripture and, and, and not really get what it's saying. So when you come to passages like, um, Hebrews chapter 5, near the end of it, where, where whoever it was that wrote that epistle says, you know, what is the matter with you people? At a time that you should be out there teaching and discipling, you're still like babies sucking back the milk, arguing mm -hmm. over first principles. And, and I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be a teacher. I'm not supposed to be just sitting here as a passive observer while everything's going on up at the front. All the important stuff is being done for me. And that was the bomb that was set up underneath my, my comfortable pew seat. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that's why a lot of people don't want to get it. Very few people respond the way you do. Most people, their lives are very busy. Uh, whatever it is they think about church, it's worked out, it works. They come, do their part. Pastor does his part. Uh, quite frankly, they'd be terrified if they had to do anything the pastor was doing. Um, and the rest of the people either go along with it, or they're troublemakers, or they go somewhere else. So why are we worried about that? And that's where she changed me. That's where Olivia changed me. Because I, it was at that point, because I was in the middle of thinking through what is, what is the nature 
of authority that Jesus was talking about? What is the power that Jesus was talking about? And, and as I was thinking through how I would argue it with a, a fellow good Presbyterian, what, what struck me was I'll never win that argument. Doesn't, I mean, I could be as right as rain. I'll never win the argument. Mm -hmm. And I thought about the way millennials, who we mock mercilessly, how do they view authority? How do they see it? What do they think is, is the... Um, millennials have absolutely no problem with what I just described. And that is, they want to have impact. They yeah. don't want to take a job where they're just doing the job. In other words, that's a kingdom orientation. The yeah. kingdom person says, at the bottom of that toilet bowl, that's God's kingdom as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to, I'm going to do to it what needs to be done. That's a millennial perspective. They don't see the bottom of a toilet bowl. They see a world that needs to be changed. Yeah. And we make like the stuff that they think ought to be changed. They really believe in that. And the other thing too is a millennial will say, you're in charge. I'll do whatever you say. And the next day you say, go do such and such. And they go, no way. I'm not going to do that. And then they'll give you a moral reason not to. I, I run into this with baristas all the time. It's wrong. You know, the people want a really sweet, uh, uh, gosh, what do you call it? A um, brown sugar and butter latte. And they go, oh, that sugar's bad for you. I'm, I'm just not going to make a latte that sweet. Dude, they want a latte that's, you know, I'm in charge. It's not Get quick. You know, they have no problem with the concept. Any good Christian would say, oh, no. You're the owner, you're the authority, therefore, even if what you're doing is wrong, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I mean, unless you're, you really, you know, do something evil. Right. Um, and and it's like they already understand what Jesus meant when he said, there's nobody out there who has final authority. You come as a servant. You come to serve. You lay down your life. They get that. Yeah. And it, uh, that's, that's when I was just reflecting on her. I said, we need to start churches. We need to build churches. We need to inspire people and explain to them how it works and start discipling people. That was the task of the elders. So important that they wouldn't even take care of widows. Well, that's pretty serious when you go read the prophets. But the, the, the apostles in the church says, no, no, we're going to get young men to administrate this. Did it mean that, that the apostles were never down where the feeding of the widows took place and didn't do stuff that, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they did. The point is the administration and the carrying out of that ministry was not the ministry of the word and prayer. Right. And something else that isn't the ministry of the word and prayer is a judicial ministry of holding court in the church and passing binding judgments to bind the consciences of everybody in the church. That's not, that's not a part of the ministry of the word and prayer either. What is that ministry? That's the ministry in which through example and through teaching, uh, in being there with the people, you build up their maturity so that they can be people to effectively be the judges in the kingdom. Who yeah. are the people who are going to judge angels? Yeah. All of you, including the women. I mean, Paul was very insistent where he's talking about hats on women and stuff like whatever that was. He says, why is this important? Because we're going to judge angels. The women are going to judge the angels. The men are going to judge the angels. The least among you ought to be able to judge you. Why are you going after these pagan judges in the world. It, as book of uh, Hebrew says, by now you should be teachers, yeah. and yet you're still in the first principles. Um, and that's been going on. I, I think there's an integral relationship between 
the the ceiling, the glass ceiling that the church has reached, and the form of government the church has chosen. And that's that's the third book that I've been working on. I haven't mentioned the second book. The third book that I've been working on is called "When Children Rule the uh, Excuse Me When Children Walk the Earth." And the point of that book is the father-child metaphor analogy has been used for all human governments from as long as there's ever been human governments. That, that, that the ruler is the parent and the people are the children. And if that's true, then all civilization has been the story of, of um, children walking the earth, push, being pushed around by a few father figures. Civilization is children walking the earth. Uh, and, and so as I began to think about that metaphor, what's missing from that picture? What's missing is the idea that children can grow up. It's an authoritarian picture. And in an authoritarian picture, you never have children coming of age. They're always children that need the father king, the father uh, priest, the father whatever, elder, uh, to, to basically see to it that they stay on the straight and narrow. They need his protection. They need his teaching. They need, and it's, 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 that, is, that is the world under the curse. Um, and so consequently, authoritarian government can only take God's people so far. What lies beyond that? What lies beyond that is hearts of stone being turned to hearts of flesh, the law of God being written on them. And, and, and remember, Jesus is, is the model of this. He was the very word of God, the law of God made flesh. And that's exactly what he, Ezekiel and Jeremiah said the mark of the new covenant was going to be the the uh, um, the the heart being turned from stone to flesh, and the law being written on the heart instead of on a stone carried down from Sinai, that's too easy to smash. Mm-hmm. the The immediate segue is into Jesus inaugurating this in the same way that he first took it away, uh, and that is when they sinned in the garden. What was going to take place was they were going to learn from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the ethical foundation for the judicial task of God's people for judging in the earth, for for transforming the earth. When Adam and Eve failed in that, when they failed, uh, they they froze humanity into a childish state, which can be described as having hard hearts. Because Jesus' comment was, hey, can the... uh, Oh, excuse me. And the first person after the serpent cursed was the woman. And he said, no longer are you going to be co-equals made in the image of God, male and female. He made them. That's not going to be the circumstance. You are now going to be subservient to your husband and he's going to rule over you and you're still going to love him. The authoritarian structure was, was a set up in marriage. And, and, and that became the authoritarian structure, which is the model of all governments. The end result of that, when Jesus now goes to deal with that question, to remove the curse, he starts with human government to remove the curse where he started to put it on them. Hey, Jesus, can I divorce my wife for any, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus' response is no. And he goes through several, listen to how Jesus does it. He says, you can't do it that way. Moses let you do it that way because your hearts were hard. Okay? Mm-hmm. He said, but from the beginning, your hearts weren't hard. From the beginning, it was not so. And he takes them back 
to the words that he spoke in the Garden of Eden when he was first created him, creating them. Uh, and he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's, that's the garden picture of government in the home, government in the family, is, is the husband and the wife becoming one flesh. And, and you got to stop here and pay attention. Jesus doesn't just end with that. He goes on to make a comment about that. He, he's, he still hasn't done, done. He says, what God has joined together, let not man cast asunder. Now, now immediately we, we think of divorce, uh, of, of a casting of asunder, the bond of marriage. Well, that's not the only way you can cast marriage asunder. You can insert into that one fleshness a hierarchy that does not exist in your body. Okay, you insert that in and all of a sudden you have a governmental theory, an authoritarian governmental theory, which God gave to preserve the human race until Jesus Christ would come and transform us. And then when the law is written on our hearts, we can go back to being united one flesh with our husband or wife. And so that whole picture in the home is not the man ruling the woman, the woman ruling the man, the two of them in you know, co-regency where, where, where one rules you know, they kind of rule in the area of competence or something like that. The picture is one flesh. You have one parent. It's, it's, it's that uh, uh, picture of the pattern for it is the Trinity. Yeah. You have two of them who are one, fully parent, fully male and female. Right. One is male, one is and And, and, and it's that picture that, that, that Jesus, after he gets through saying, he says, it's not this way now. It's not authoritarian. Uh, it, it's it's uh, from the beginning is how you're going to do it. You're going to be joined together in one flesh. And then he says one more thing that he didn't say in the garden. He says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man cast asunder. He's now fundamentally changed government because he's the God of the heart. and He's fundamentally changed their hearts. Paul comes along. And when Paul starts dealing with this picture, um, Paul then then shows them how to build a um, how to build a sanctuary home on this foundation Jesus has established. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the sanctuary home is put together like this. The general principle is in the church, the church isn't an organization that has people in charge being able to rule over in a way that other people can't with the special powers. You're submitting to each other. Well, well how does that work? Well, let's, let's, let's look at the family. He too starts where Jesus started both with the Pharisees as well as in the garden. He starts there and he says, um, women, submit to your husbands. Uh, okay, we, they've been doing that for a while. Then he says, husbands, uh, you are to love your wife. And, and, and as you go through the passage, and if you can get out of your authoritarian mindset, um, what you'll see is that throughout this passage, Paul is, is referring to one flesh. Uh, we'll just start with, with the beginning. He talks about headship. What does headship mean? There's 24 different meanings that the Greek could be for headship. And when we argue, we'll pick the meaning that fits our way of looking at it, whatever that is, and say, well, that's what Paul really meant. Well, actually, why don't you just look at what Paul said? Paul said, the husband is the head, the way Christ is the head, and he imitates Christ in laying down his life for his wife, the way Christ laid down his life for his church. And then he starts using references. Um, so, so if you want to know what headship means, it's the headship of protection. 
How do you know that? Because some lexicon says it in the Greek? No, because Paul says it in the scriptures. And so all the way through, the issue is not who sets policy, who polices policy, who keeps who on the straight and narrow. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it has to do with the salvation of, there's not one word of directing or controlling in this passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, Paul doesn't leave love to some vague imagination. Uh, he, he defines it as laying down your life. And so in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Hear the echo of the one flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. Again, you hear the echo of one flesh. For no one ever hated his own body or hated uh, his own flesh. Again, the echo of being one flesh. But he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Uh, Well, what does he mean by that? Because we are members of his body. Again, there's that one flesh picture. And the glory as a Christian is we're united to Christ, but we have a separate identity. We're not Buddhists. We have a separate identity, though we're united. Husbands and wives are united. That's that picture of the, of the one fleshness. And then Paul concludes, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Mm-hmm. See, Paul goes back to the creation ordinance. Paul goes back to Jesus' words to the Pharisees. And you now have a whole different picture of authority in the home. It's the two or one. Let not man separate those with, with a cursed view of authority. See, the, the, the authoritarian model of government is what Paul gave, excuse me, what Jesus, what Jesus yes, what, what the second person in the Trinity, what God gave to a cursed world to hold it together. Much the same way God gave Joseph to Egypt so they wouldn't starve to death. That's the blessing. The curse is, at the end of the day, they're all slaves of the Pharaoh. So uh, that's, that's, that's the nature of authoritarian government. Now with Christ, with the Holy Spirit being, being, uh, g- giving us a new heart through, uh, um, through our recreation, we're new creatures, we're transformed, we're forgiven, we have a new heart, and the Holy Spirit is writing his law in the heart. We're now people who can truly be as it was in the beginning. So it is now and ever shall be. Uh, we can be people who can be one flesh. It can work. And the form of government Jesus is moving his people to is that each individual from the heart living according to God's law. Now, people say, well, okay, so this, this means we don't need a, a civil government, a, a church government, something like that? No, not at all. What it does is it transforms the task of the civil and the church governments. It, it, it transforms them into institutions that, that don't have to police. They don't need that, that uh, oh, what's the word for it? Executive function. You know, the president isn't necessary. Um, they simply need some, some structure whereby they can adjudicate disputes, assess damages, and so forth. Uh, we're still sinners and that sort of thing. Um, and, and so there's still a function for it, but the function is no longer the f- or to put it a different way, when you grow up, do you still need your parents? Yes. Do you need your father to come give you a good, good righteous spanking when you've done the wrong thing? Uh, no, that's not how he leads anymore. Uh, it goes from being olive shoots around the table saying, saying there's no other woman like, there's no other mother, like, blessed are you among women. Or what, what do they say anyway in, in Psalm, what is it, 128? Uh, to being, they're the ones who come down to the city gate with their father. 
You see, they stand with their, it, it's a whole different picture of leadership. And what gets replaced, what's missing from the father-child model of government is the end result of a real father and a real child is the child no longer is a child and grows to be an adult. That doesn't exist in authoritarian government because you can't rule adults, people who are spiritually and ethically mature. Think uh, Ephesians 4, 11. Think uh, Hebrews, was it 5? Um, that, that, that once you're grown up, you don't relate to people who need to beat you to keep you in line. And that's Paul's sarcastic comment, by the way. When he was talking about the false apostles, he says, I am so sorry, Corinthians. Maybe we should have just slapped you. Would that make you respect us more? In other words, they're still children. Yeah. You know, you, you need the dad to, okay, kid. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not how you do it. And that's why Paul never, throughout the entire book of Corinthians, says what you need is some elders. In fact, he rebukes the Corinthians for not having dealt with the, the, uh, the sin of the man living with his father's uh, wife. He didn't say, oh, you know what, if you just had elders, this never would have happened. He didn't say, hey, wait till I get down there and we'll convene a court and we'll discipline them. He says, you guys should have done this yesterday. But okay, if you don't want to do it by yourself, fine. You get together, I'll be with you in spirit, and we will, you know, we'll do this thing. But there's not an appeal to the, the necessity of an elder and apostle to make it happen. And throughout the whole book of Corinthians, it's that picture of you guys need to grow up. It's that picture of it, the task of the, of the church is so important. You cannot distract the church with administrative duties. You cannot distract the leaders of the church with judicial duties, special as if they're the only ones who can do it. It's so important that we disciple each member of the congregation so that they can be the judiciary. They can be the ethical uh, conscience of the church, each member. And that the role of the elders is to be like the senior parent uh, who, who has more wisdom, perhaps, more this, more that, you know, experience. But he's not the disciplinary force in the church. He's, he's working full time so that there is no need for a disciplinary force in the church. The congregation has everything it needs. So this kind of rounds out um, the whole idea of equipping the body to do the work of the ministry then. Yes, the thing that you'll see on so many bulletins and mastheads in churches. All the while they sit there and watch a, an actor on the stage perform all the holy rites of the faith. But right there is it's like, oh, I'm, I'm really not the one running everything. I'm just the guy equipping you. Okay. You know, that's kind of like going to a, I don't know, a, a Mission Impossible movie. And you watch uh, whoever that guy is do all these amazing things going through. And at the end of it, he says, you know, everything I was doing, you can do. I was just doing it to kind of inspire you to be able to be a Mission Impossible spy. <laughs> inspiring you to act anybody can act the way i can act yeah and it's like no he's a pretty good actor you know i, I really couldn't act like that um by act i, I mean be be a movie star that's that's i couldn't even be a theater star i, I couldn't do the local repertory theater it, it's it's that's that's what the theater oriented church creates is people who with a straight face can say i'm serving you in reality, what they're saying, doing, though, is I'm replacing you. Yeah. But my, my work is ministerial. How do you know that? Well, you don't have to do communion. You don't have to preach a sermon. I'm doing this for you. No, you're doing this in place of you. Yeah. 
result is a bunch of people who sit in the pews. So uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. How do we move from a theater-style Sunday morning ritual to a participatory organism where we're actually doing the work of the ministry and our, our success is not being measured by how many conversions and baptisms we do, but rather by the influence that we have in our society? Well, I, I, for, first of all, don't see the two as being mutually exclusive. Okay. Uh, without, without conversions, um, I think that you go back to the, the upper room. First of all, it was a worship service. I remember you asked me that question. It stuck in the back of my mind, even though I didn't know how to answer it when you asked me. I'm not sure I know now. But how do you know it was a worship service? Are you kidding? It's the highest and holiest days of the Jewish worship calendar. Okay, it's Passover. Yeah, it doesn't be bigger than that. Day of Atonement. Okay, that's pretty important too. Um, it, it's a feast day. What are they doing? And and this is where I think that that the way Jesus did it shows you the regulatory principle of the church. If you open the door and walk into it, you would see the God of the universe lying down pretty close to on his back, not reclining, because there was another man's head on his chest, John's. Mm -hmm. He lay with his head on his chest. And almost everything that takes place in the upper room there uh, takes, well, we, we know that, that, that a number of the things that took place, he's talking along, um, and, and Peter at one point, when he says, all of you are going to betray me, is, is hand signaling to John. Uh, and, and apparently at that time, I don't have the text in front of me, but, but it struck me. John seems to be in the same position on Jesus' chest. The whole room has exploded around them. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? I don't think it's a Da Vinci situation where they went one at a time to see who is the true betrayer. And the reason I say that is, is, is nobody figured out who it was. What, were they stupid? I, I think all of us, at one time or another, as you read those stories, you think, how could they have missed this? Because we're picturing a church-like setting in which everybody's being really quiet and spiritual. Instead yeah. of a place where a whole bunch of friends are exploding, you know, not only is he saying I'm going to die, but he's saying one of you is going to betray me. And it's out of that that who is the greatest pops up. They start arguing about it all. See, I told you we need to get somebody in charge. Now he's serious about dying. And everybody knows it was really dangerous to be in Jerusalem at that time. Um, now he's serious about it. Who, who's the greatest? Who's going to take his place? Who's going to be doing the work of whatever, carrying on the Jesus ministry? Well. Uh, the, 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 the school of Rabbi Yeshua. That's what they're arguing about. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the whole time, though, now we're not talking about the authority question, the whole time, it seems like Jesus was lying there with John's head on his chest, or at the very least reclining. Uh, he, there, there's no indication that he ever got up until they left. And also, when you look culturally at how symposia went, that's how they spent the entire evening at their dinner parties. You get up to go to the vomit hole. You get up to go to the bathroom. You might get it, but but by and large, you stayed reclining on your couch. That's how it was designed. So every indication is that if you had been in the upper room, you would have seen the God of the universe entirely unhung up about about people not paying attention. And the reason I say that is because all eleven disciples, well, the twelfth one got killed. He can't really be blamed for not paying attention. Um, all eleven disciples, ten of them. 
missed about three, four chapters of some of the most important scripture that's in the whole Bible, stuff that Jesus said. Yeah. Uh, they missed. Jesus doesn't seem terribly concerned that they weren't paying attention. Jesus doesn't seem terribly concerned. It, it seems the way Jesus structured his understanding of the church is it's a place where you eat, you talk, and if somebody has something worth listening to, people stop and listen. Just like they did at the big rallies where he'd go out there and speak to everybody. Yeah. Uh, you think everybody was listening equally? Some of them had little kids running around. How much do you think the moms with the children had? And they were distracting other people. Why do you think the, the disciples said, shh, we have a nursery right over there that the young children can, you know, <laughs> why they did that? <laughs> we do. Shut up and listen to Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus seems to be saying, I don't think you're ready to listen to me yet because clearly you're not paying attention. Cool. You might burn in hell for it, but, but I mean, he's good with that. And I see structuring our worship services around that, that regulatory principle of we're not uptight about setting up a theater which forces everybody to look at a central actor who does all the stuff. It doesn't mean that somebody other than elders will do the Lord's table. You probably will pick the prestige people. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll pick the least prestigious just to remind us that we're not here to be worshiping the greatest. Well, we are Jesus. But I mean, in other words, we're, we're not here to, to set up a theater priestly environment in which we can't help but go, <clears throat> wow, what an awesome pastor we've got. Or, gosh, what an idiot. It's a good thing the church, the pews pays forward. I would never listen to this guy. Um, it's, it's, it's a whole different environment. And what would happen if instead of saying that's incidental, all we need to do is boil out the important parts. There's some teaching, there's some worshiping and singing, uh, probably some reading of scripture. Yeah, there's, there's reading of scripture. Uh, we'll boil down the meal to a real quick, uh, you know, body, blood, you know, a little bit of H and take them and something that's said to indicate it's special. We're going to have a baptism, boom, boom, done. So in other words, instead of boiling it down to its bare bones, that's starvation diet Christianity. Mm -hmm. That's where you ask the question, what's the least I need to believe to be saved? Well, the thief on the cross, knew next to nothing. Okay. So like the thief on the cross, I can next, know next to nothing and be saved. Cool. I think I'll keep it this way. It's much more convenient. <laughs> no, we've done that reduction. We boiled it down. I, I boiled down wine to make uh, a base for, uh, uh, um, oh, what do you call it? Vinegar, not vinegar. Salad dressing. You know, we, we, we boil it all down. We boil the virtue out of it. All, all the alcohol is gone. The spirit is gone. And all that's left with is a pretty tasty substance that we can control as priests. It's very handy for priests. And it's also handy to keep people in their place and the priest in his place and everything's comfortable. What would happen if for Jesus, the, the what we would call as Presbyterians disorder was actually part of his, of his sifting process of enabling an environment where the wise rise to the top because they're worth listening to. It yeah. can't happen overnight. Yeah. And so, so, you know, um, just looking at First uh, Corinthians and chapter 11 there, you know, it sounds like they were pretty chaotic and, you know, people showing up for the meal ahead of others and <laughs> Paul telling them, well, wait for these people to show up and stuff. So it sounds like it was a lot more unstructured than what we're used to. Well, and here's the important thing. 
you sort of expect the first three or four years, you know, the first five, six chapters of, of Genesis, of Acts, show them, you know, running around from house to house and kind of helter-skelter. Uh, but now Paul's writing about a church 25 years later, yeah, 20 years later, same kind of ad hoc environment. Yeah. And so this, this tells me that the, if the apostles had a problem with that, they, they would have, um, they would have said something. They would have changed it. They would have done something. Um, they apparently didn't have a problem with that. Paul didn't have a problem with that. When he said do things decently and in order, he wasn't laying out an abstract principle, which then retools everything you see in, in the New Testament. He was simply saying the, the decency and order, go back and look at the text, it's worth looking at. The decency and order is not an abstract principle of Robert's rules of order. Mm-hmm. It's the principle of, hey, you know what? Cheryl's trying to sing a song. Could, could we listen to her? Look, I know she can't sing, okay? But let's listen to her. Yeah. And, and let's get uh, Cheryl's sister, who really can sing, to do more of the singing. But it's like, uh, Fred is talking. He's the least esteemed among us. That, that's why we listen to him, okay? Doesn't mean we give him the center stage at all times. It's, it's, it's that picture of Paul just saying, discern the body, take care of each other. It's yeah. not Paul saying, it's not to create a theater, but one guy in charge and have him do the magic show. Yeah. Have him do all, it's, it's, it's a very different thing that Paul's saying. And exegetically, you go by the text, not by 2,000 years of developing what order, the most precise sense of what order means. Yeah. I think a lot of times the order that we've, at least what I've seen in some of the churches I've been in, including uh, Baptist churches, is that that desire to be so orderly is is not only used to um, keep all the congregants slapped up and running in the same direction, but it also squeezes out the role of the Holy Spirit in in speaking through it. If I could close on one thing, because I've got to run. Um, it's that, so what is the authority and power of those who rule the church? Why is it so important that they be considered the servants and least among us? Why is that? It's somewhat akin to Acton's principle, power corrupts absolute, power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's because power that God intends to embody in his leaders in the church is not a power that can mingle and mix with human government effectively. It's going to, you can't serve God and man. Yeah. You think that was just written for, 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 for money? Um, the, the mouth can't speak salt and, and sweet water at the same time, like, like a spring. Do you think that was just written so you don't use dirty words? No. There's a spiritual principle here of when Jesus instituted a government, Specifically, he wanted it to be the power of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, uh, in, uh, in enlivening church. That's why the analogy of alcohol is used. There, there, it's, it's, it's more than just the grape juice. There's something else in there that, 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 that starts animating the person who's had a few too many drinks. Uh, and, and Jesus isn't afraid of that analogy. I mean, one first thing he ever said to Paul was to compare himself to, uh, to Bacchus, which is pretty radical. Yeah. <laughs> why do you kick quoting what Bacchus said in Euripides? So um, uh, it's, it's, it's that picture. What, what is the church? It's a spiritual institution that you cannot say, 
you know, we really don't have anybody who's quite on the level of Peter and John and James and, and all those guys anymore. So let's start an organization and let's give the people in the organization powers that the congregation doesn't have. And let's give them checks and balances because we're Presbyterian. We're not just authoritarian or Presbyterian after all. Mm-hmm. And, and they're still going to have powers that nobody else has. And all of a sudden, you've got a structure here which competes with the Holy Spirit. Now it really doesn't matter if Pastor Smith or Elder Jones is full of the Holy Spirit. You know, I mean, he's part of a session. Some are more spiritual. No, no. From Jesus, as you stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Ghost comes, you don't, you don't go anywhere without that Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the conversions start taking place. Uh-uh. Church doesn't grow without the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, get down. We got to get them baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's that picture of if you have a congregation uh, that doesn't apparently have any spirit-filled leaders, then, then you're on your face. That's where you are. You're tearing in Jerusalem. You wait until the Holy Spirit starts confirming stuff. Yeah, but isn't that a great environment for uh, uh, mob rule? You know, the, the, the people who, I, there's a word for them, the charlatans who can deceive the mob like, like, like Simon Magus. And the answer is not if all the elders who have ever been an elder in this church have done their job and you have people who can't be blown around by every wind of doctrine. They'll yeah. see it. Yeah. They'll sort out. The scripture's final. They'll get them. They'll figure it out. They'll deal with it. And so what, what, what you have is a group of people who will only operate if it's the Holy Spirit filling their sails. And the only organization they might have is maybe make a bigger sale or something. But, but it's not, there's nothing that replaces that authority of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If you curse somebody and they don't fall dead, and everybody better look at you and say, are you really the one who want to be leading us? Yeah. Uh, it, it transforms that picture. And just the way it, it works real simply, I would think is that this ought to be something, if it really is meeting people's needs, you're bringing people to it. Yeah. And if the Holy Spirit really is moving, they get transformed. As they get transformed, the room gets too full. And the church starts splitting and dividing. And this process is going on. One of the reasons why I don't think house churches are what I think the New Testament is talking about, because most house churches are pretty dead. They're satisfied with where they are. They've been the same size forever. And there's one guy who runs it. And there's one, one guy who brings them all and one guy who finds them and binds them in whatever the house church is, just to right. quote Lord of the Rings. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that's what the Bible's talking about. It's talking about a group of people who are growing and as they get big, they're, they're always divided. And, and you know what? If you're not continuing to grow, then you're on your face before God saying, God, what are we missing? What are we not saying? Fill us with your spirit. Send us forth. Now, in that environment where division is normal, it's how you're growing, you can now have all kinds of doctrinal controversies. As long as the commitment is a centrality of the word of God, uh, some people can spring up who say, you know what, we think babies ought to be baptized. And other people say, well, you know, no, that, that isn't the way it should be. And they argue, it doesn't have to get bitter. They divide along those doctrinal lines. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You go to the altar over here and you have your church and keep growing the way the Holy Spirit intended. We'll have ours, whichever side it is. And, and, and as we grow in the next 200 years, one to three things will happen. We'll find out that you should baptize babies or shouldn't baptize them because the, the group that does it one way thrives, the one who does it the other way doesn't. Or you'll find out God doesn't care that much. He can work with this. And it may be 10,000 years before we figure this one out. Yeah. Don't worry about it. 
Yeah. Why? Because you've got to be bringing people into the congregation, discipling them. In any division, you say, well, how about heresy? Send the heretic out there to start his own miserable little Aryan church. Pardon me? Screw him. Okay? You pray for him. Each side praying for the other. Lord, straighten them out. And in time, nothing that as long as you're committed to Scripture, it may be three, four, four hundred years later, but God will sort that out. Yeah. He'll extinguish those he doesn't want. And those who are obeying scripture are going to fill, propagate. And it just, Paul doesn't need, excuse me, Paul, I keep calling God Paul. God <laughs> need our authoritarian elders. Who, you know, well, who's going to keep the church pure? Like the elders have done a good job of that. Yeah. Every heresy in the history, with tiny few exceptions, has come from the ordained ministry of the church. I mean, it's the wolves. So we say, we need to hire wolves to protect us from the wolves. No, what if Jesus said, I don't want wolfy, wolfine, uh, uh, Gentile government. You want something else. So those are just, just some, by, by the way, I'm working on these ideas. I don't have them hammered out. But what I really am looking for, if, if somebody listening says, well, you know, it's time for us to start a church like this. I would say, find somebody who agrees with you. Yeah. Uh, get together once a month, start eating together it doesn't have to be you know bring something from mcdonald's don't don't make whoever cooks in the family do something special it doesn't have to be a feast uh just get together whatever you got and 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 get together meet pray and just look at the scriptures that that talk, talk about this thing and, and and just see what god what what happens and i tell you if it's meeting your needs you will go find other people to say hey come on uh they're gonna 10 gentiles are gonna grab a hold of the cloak of one jew and say take us with you because we've heard that God is with you. Mm -hmm. Zachariah said they will. Mm -hmm. and, it, it's that, and, and I'll tell you, if you're not doing that about your church or your fellowship, I don't care what you say theologically, you are saying with your life, this ain't meeting needs. Yeah. Like it kind of helps me because I'm sort of unique and I can live with this stuff, but there's nobody else out there I can think of who would thrive in this environment. And that's why you're not bringing up. And so rather than trying to pretend that you really do believe in your church or, you know, and, and, and the same is true. If you try to start a fellowship like this and you find you're not bringing people in or they're not staying, then it's time to get on your face and ask the question, what is it, Lord? What can I do? What, what, what do you need to do that we're trying to do for you? Yeah. Well, Joseph, it's been a slice as ever. I, I always enjoy our conversations and I'm hoping others will enjoy this conversation as well. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you'll actually publish these books one day so that we can read them. In the meantime, what I'd like to urge people to do is go back and read the passages of Scripture we've been talking about, maybe with new eyes. Absolutely. And underline those verses that, that give a group of leaders in the church powers that the rest of the congregation doesn't have. And when you find a number of verses seem to indicate that, just ask yourself the honest question. Do the verses say that? Or do I bring them in because I'm dealing with the old covenant authoritarian, not even old covenant, the cursed way that God preserved the human race with authoritarian government. And I'm not reading what this actually inspired to be written down in the New Testament. Just that's, that's my challenge to you. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And I hope you have a good weekend with all those banquets to look after and the feasting. <laughs> Thank you. I've been getting texted regularly from Anne, giving me a list of things I need to bring uh, quickly okay. to the, bring to the banquet. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you. Bye now.
Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.